The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts, I am Jay. And I am Mike. As this is the spookiest time of year, Mike and I have upended our usual brand of cinematic tomfoolery by going full bore horror. He hit me first with the shockingly idiotic 13 Ghosts. In turn, I swung back with what I feel is a KO, a haymaker. Lucio Fulci's 1981 Cajun-seasoned gorefest, <laughs> The Beyond. We'll hear his thoughts on that movie, list off our bottom five gore effects, and then offer up some staff picks before Mike tells me what cinematic drivel he's got me watching for next time. Before all that, though, it's time to smear Vaseline all over the lens, chuck out all logic and reason, and get on some serious eight-legged gore with The Beyond. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world. So, Mike, if there's one thing I know about you, it's that you positively despise one thing more than anything else in this world. Mushrooms on pizza. It's mushrooms on pizza. That's the <laughs> it's thing. It's not mushrooms on pizza. No. I feel like I could throw anything at you. If I threw zombies at you, you would just shrug them off. Demons, you'd just have a, a cackle. Killer robots, you'd roll up your sleeves and kick some tin can ass. But spiders... Mm-hmm. Did you even make it through the most infamous scene from the beyond, or did you set fire to your house and move to the next state? I mean, where are you actually recording from right now? Like, okay, if we're going to start here... <laughs> we'll just start here. If we're going to start here, I guess we could explain that, that Fulci's movie is about a hotel built on a gateway to hell, or whatever the hell those movies are about, but I guess what comes out of that are... A horde of face-eating tarantulas. <laughs> I didn't know that was a part of the movie. And when I tell you that I went nearly catatonic <laughs> during this part of the movie. I, and I was hoping we'd never find the day where you went full-on arachnophobia for me. Yeah. I suspect that that was a bit of a Bob Ross happy accident. I don't know that you chose yeah. this because of the spider. So I'm afraid that... Somewhere down the line, I'm going to get Mike Merrigan watches a spider movie. But th this scene had me crawling up my own wall, like covering my face, <laughs> hyperventilating. I, oh, man, that was easily the worst thing that has ever happened to me as a result of this show. Hands down. I wish I could say it was intentional. You were right in thinking that it that it was a happy accident. I didn't mean to hit you that hard with that low a blow oh my god <laughs> um, maybe maybe subconsciously maybe subconsciously i realized it but i didn't mean for that to happen but i think that maybe karma there was some sort of karma <laughs> at work maybe for for brain scan or cats if you could have seen me it more than made up for anything i've ever done to you and part of it had me wondering <laughs> why in the first place you wanted me to watch a Fulci film mm. for our a film jitsu movie because I think he's very well regarded in the horror community. I've seen his other right. stuff. You yeah. know that I like what he does. And so I was like, okay, well, 
why is he making me watch this movie? Why is this a film jitsu movie? Maybe yeah. you didn't even know it yourself. You just thought it would be a good conversation. I'm not sure. But then the yeah. fucking spiders happened. <laughs> and you were like, that bastard. I wish I could have. I wish I could have had enough clarity to be angry with you. I was just in the deepest, darkest state of absolute <laughs> mortal terror. What if the spiders, instead of crawling inside the guy's mouth and prying his teeth out, instead were crawling on mushroom pizza? Uh, uh-uh. Nope. Then then when you logged in for this recording, you would have just got a deadline because I'd be swinging from the ceiling in my living room. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, well, I did pick it largely because I had caught up with it not long before I assigned it to you. Okay. And found it so atrocious a watch for me that I thought I had to share it. So so it really came down to I was filling in a a blind spot, essentially, and I thought it was trash. So so it really came down to that. And that was it. I what I did want to kind of discuss a little bit was the gore. What was the point? Like, what is the point of, Mm. of a movie like this? Because this gore isn't terribly convincing. No, it's not. But it is so outrageous. And the amount of time that they spend on each sequence is so absurd. So I think the first scene where there's the painter and Mm -hmm. the the townspeople come in and they spill acid all over him and he melts. It's a three minute sequence of him melting. Isn't it the mother? Isn't it the, the mom face melts, right? It's a woman that face melts. That's later. Oh. That's later. The painter the painter who falls off the scaffolding and he's like gushing blood from his mouth and they just put him on the couch for a few minutes? That guy? No, the very beginning of the movie when the oh, townspeople come crowding yes. in and they, they attack and it's, it's sepia toned okay. and it's so, supposed yeah, to be in the, I, so. I'm going to be honest. I want to talk about this. <laughs> I loved this movie within the first 10 seconds based on this opening that you're talking about because it it didn't last but we start the movie with a big house a dark and stormy night this black and yellow color palette it wasn't quite sepia it was almost like this black and yellow it was a callback yeah. to me to James Whale's Frankenstein in 31 I was on board I'm you know the villagers are coming literally with pitchforks and torches to get this guy where did you watch it where did you watch this what do you mean where did I watch it there's several different versions of the Beyond, but there is a sepia tone beginning on Tubi, which is the copy that I saw. Mm. And it's very, I mean, it's very evident that it is sepia. It's not black and, and yellow the way that you're describing, which is what he had originally intended. Uh-huh. And apparently the Blu-ray that came out a few years ago had four different versions of the opening segment. And it was wow. all color time differently. So it's kind sure. of an interesting thing that you you described it as you did. And I'm like, wait a minute. So <laughs> yeah, so we have all these we have all these villagers that come into the castle, hotel, whatever. There's a man that they have accused of being a warlock. They kill mm-hmm. him in the basement in a very good. This guy's got a lot of juice in his bod, right? He is not good <laughs> at keeping his blood on the inside. Well, he melts. <laughs> that's right but they slash him with chains and all that kind yes, of stuff yes they do at first they get him right yeah right in the cheek he ultimately melts and that's the thing that killing is what opens up this gate to hell i think because uh <laughs> let me just go with this right right after the opening the movie does two things right after this sequence we're talking about <laughs> it goes all in on the gore in the way that you would expect from fulci it goes mm. all 
out on any semblance of logic or reason. <laughs> Those are the yes. two things, which is also kind of what I'd expect from Fulci. It's like this rancid, gooey, bloody fever mm. dream full of melting flesh and gouged eyeballs. And I'll be honest, I lost the plot thread almost immediately and never yeah, got yeah. it back because yeah. I'm not really sure it was there to begin with. And it didn't really matter for me. I think like a lot of Fulci movies, the story isn't the point. You watch Fulci for those over-the-top, outlandish, why did they spend so much time on this gore effects. Yeah. And I think yeah. you wisely chose that for me because as I've talked about in the past, for a guy who loves horror, I do not love realistic depictions of gore. I was right. thinking about Eli Roth's Green Inferno, a movie that is hyper-realistic in these really, really gory, disgusting things. And I'm not interested. But Fulci mm. is so cartoonish. You can see the craft at work that even though mm. it looks as hilariously cartoonish as it does, and it's so disgusting, it doesn't hit me mm. on that gut level because I can see it for the craft that it is while it's happening. That spider scene, mm. it is very clearly... A hastily <laughs> made wax head. They have real spiders, real tarantulas yes, crawling. Yes, there on are it, some. While also simultaneously these hilarious, barely even moving little puppety spiders <laughs> yeah. that are pulling the yeah. faces apart. So you get a little bit of both of that. And for me, that's the fun of Fulci. Well, I'll tell you one thing that you've definitely caught on to was the fact that there was no story here. Um, <laughs> it said that the film was made with a three-page treatment. And no script. There you go. That's that. That was his shooting script. Was a three-page treatment, out. and it checks and out. it shows. I mean, yeah. that that clearly shows. I like gore. Mm -hmm. I like gore effects. I grew up reading Fangoria. Yep. I absolutely adored guys like Rick Baker and Rob Boutine and uh, Dick Smith, Savini, right? So this is a this is very much my wheelhouse today with our bottom five oh, and, good. and this movie. Even it, it's often the case on this show where we watch movies and we're trying to figure out who the hell they made the movie for. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of who wanted to see the mom's face melt for that long. Mm -hmm. It's so redundant. It's so repetitive. Is it just bad filmmaking or is he trying, is he trying to put a message across? He doesn't seem like a dumb guy, No, but maybe, maybe he was, I, I think I he's tell. really good at bad filmmaking. I think is it, I, okay. this might just be, really competent bad filmmaking in that fair enough perhaps the question we should ask is just because you can does that mean you should because right. you can depict a human head melting <laughs> over the course of three minutes in a way that works as far as an, a, an effect it doesn't mean that that's how you should spend those three minutes of your movie and that's so much of Fulci and and this you know his Italian gore cinema that stuff comes up over and over again. It's almost like watching a highlight reel of what he's capable of doing, even though he's not really telling a lot of a story. And right. this movie sits right in the middle of his Gates of Hell trilogy, along mm -hmm. with uh, City of the Dead and House by the Cemetery, which yep. I think is really more of a cycle than a trilogy because they have basically no connection to one another other than they right. share Catherine McCall is an actress who appears in all of them, but as different characters. But they all have, yeah. I think, something to do with some kind what? of gate to hell. Can, I don't know. Can I just, can I ask real quick about these like filmmaker trilogies? Because, you yeah. know, yeah, there are ones that are obviously connected, like Romero's Dead movies. Yep. That's like a... 
that's a universe. It makes sense. Night, dawn, day. Mm -hmm. Like, great. Carpenter had his Apocalypse trilogy with the what the thing, the Prince of Darkness in the Mouth of Madness. Argento had, had his um, three, three Mothers, Mothers trilogy, right. which was Suspiria, Inferno, Mother of Tears. What what do you think of this idea of filmmakers having these thematic trilogies? Like, what, what is it? Just a shorthand way of saying that they practice these same themes in their films, or is it is it actual? Because these don't seem that connected to me. They definitely aren't. And I think that sometimes these trilogies are applied by the viewer after the fact. I don't know Mm -hmm. that Fulci set out to make a trilogy of films with these connected themes. I think you can make a little bit more of an argument with that for something like Argento's Three Mothers. Mm. I don't really know enough about the filmmaker's intent to be able to say chicken or the egg on that one. But very rarely, I think, does somebody, unless they know that it's a thematic trilogy, I don't know that they would mm. watch those three movies and go, oh, those are three connected films. The, the interesting thing about Fulci, in his case, these three movies were made within like a year of each mm-hmm. other. Like all three. Mm-hmm. They were all released. It was like 80, 81, 81 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So he, at least with him, it's like he was in a moment yeah. and they're together. Yeah. It, it seems a little seems a little flimsy to me. It <laughs> is. A, I, I, think, I think it's a little flimsy. I think, <laughs> and we'll talk about this later, I bet, but horror fans love a good trilogy. We love a good series. We love a good franchise. <laughs> we love to connect our films together. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's fair to say that thematically, or even in this case where, well, okay, three movies made within a year and a half, you have to kind of think of them as a whole thing yeah i think there's something to be said for that i don't think i think there is a difference between a thematic trilogy and a true franchise for lack of a better word like like romero yeah, like yeah, romero like right romero. they share a title yeah. they share a genre all of that mm. kind of stuff i think that when it comes to italian horror mm. a lot of the time at least for me there is a decision to put a premium on the filmmaking rather than the story that we're telling. And so I enjoy a lot of Italian horror for its visual art form, but it's full of these indelible visual moments. Mm-hmm. When you think about film as the magic of filmmaking, right, is all of those single images running real fast to create movement. I think that in a lot of ways, these Italian films are full of these single frames that just kind of sear mm. their way into your noggin. The melting face. Yeah. And especially even some of those Argento things, you know, the Giallo stuff and, and all of that. It's yeah. so visually interesting. And I always go back to a yeah. little bit of a fever dream where I don't necessarily know what's going on the first time I watch it. I'm barely sure. tracking it, but boy, am I caught up in in whatever the hell the visuals. it is that I'm yeah. watching. The visuals, the atmosphere, the violence. There's something being said. I agree with you. I think that there is something alluring about Italian cinema. And when I try to apply the kind of narrative that I expect out of film or the characters or whatever, I fall apart yeah. because that's what I look for. Whereas if I were just focused on these elements, right? These elements in this ambiance that they build and everything else. I mean, this movie is stuck in my brain. The, mm. the, the dog attacking the blind lady yeah. and ch- chewing her neck off and stuff like that. That is something that I'm going to live with forever now. Yeah, right. And <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> as we talk about it, it would be insane for us to have a conversation about this movie or about Fulci without talking about his frequent collaborator, the legendary composer, 
Fabio Frizi, yeah. who gives Man. Fulci a run for his money when it comes to getting love from the horror community. Horror hounds yeah. love this guy. The score for this movie is bonkers in the best it's possible way. Agreed. Frizi worked with Fulci in a bunch of stuff. City of the Living Dead, uh, yep. Zombie 2, the psychic over and over again. One minute, the score in this movie, it's this like chill as fuck, smooth right. jazz. The next minute, yeah. it's enormous orchestral piece. Sometimes it's all synthy and weird. It's all over the place. It's like if the original NES had porno games that you could play. It sounds like the legend of Zelda's crotch in a lot of these, a lot of parts of this movie. And I mean that in such a complimentary way. I'm like, what is happening with this score right now? It's all over the place, but not in a way that's out of place. It like it all makes sense within this fever dream of a movie. Right. It's all part of the ambience. What's interesting about Italian filmmakers is that they frequently do pair up with a composer of choice, an Italian composer of mm -hmm. choice. So you had Frizzy with Fulci, you had Findenko with D'Amato, you had uh, Goblin with Argento <laughs> and then and Pino Donaggio with De Palma sort of so yeah. I think what's neat about Frizzy is I'm a huge fan of these Italian disco prog rock scores yeah, like I don't I know even know are. how to describe them because there's also this smooth jazz element of it and Nintendo you porn know, I'm calling it Nintendo porn I, Nintendo porn <laughs> is not a bad way to phrase it another like really interesting thing about these these Italian composers and stuff I mentioned Pino Donaggio who did um, a lot of like De Palma's movies. He worked with Joe Dante on like Piranha. I'm not sure if you've ever heard this story, but how P Pino Donaggio and Fabio Frizzi were both like pop stars in Italy as well. Kind of a weird thing about both guys. It's hard to talk about the beyond when there is so little that makes sense in the movie. There's characters that sort of float in and out of the narrative, in and out of scenes, extended deaths i'm still not sure what the what the little girl had to do with any of the any of the movie it's a great it's question. Just, it's almost vignettes i think it really is so here we are it's halloween that's why we're doing this it's our it's our <laughs> spooky time of the year everything's creepy and i think that if we're gonna have a really fully formed and our listeners too i want everybody to enjoy this halloween season everybody's gonna go out and watch the classics everybody's gonna watch carpenter's halloween everybody's gonna watch mm, texas true. chainsaw all of those kind of things we're going to have those halloween comfort foods but for people mm. that are interested in maybe something they haven't seen because certainly not everybody's into horror there are people that are getting into horror discovering horror and the world of italian horror is wide and expansive and crazy and so if if anything i hope that people maybe check out the beyond as, a, as maybe their own gateway into Fulci's hell and get something <laughs> out of it. And it, there's this whole genre of horror films that don't make it onto your television during the 31 days of October. I don't know that I would recommend this to anyone, but I, I, I can't shake it. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't think. Okay. So as we wrap up this conversation, I also would not recommend this to anybody because of those fucking spiders <laughs> i guess is a did this really happen i guess i would recommend mm. fulci and so 
This yes. is as okay. good a place to see what he has in store. If you can hang with the beyond, then you can watch Zombie. You can watch sure. House by the Cemetery and certainly continue down that path into maybe some better films and get into the Giallo stuff and all that. But I hope that what we've done here is at least offer a little bit of a gateway drug for some people that might not be familiar <laughs> with Italian horror. Yeah. Crack the door. Let them look beyond. No, there's spiders in there. Don't go in there. <laughs> don't don't go in there. <laughs> So, Mike, when thinking about the beyond, obviously the thing that I grasped onto the most was the gore and how ludicrous it was. So much goo. So, so sloppy and pretty fake. And so that is really why I decided that pairing it up with the bottom five gore effects that we could think of in cinema, it was a natural, it was, it was peanut butter and chocolate. So <laughs> peanut butter and ladies. <laughs> So I'm thinking, I, we always have this different approach where I think like maybe you'll do the the thing that you don't want to have happen to mm. you in, in a movie, like gore that's so intense, you're like, I don't want to go near that, Not I never want time. to see that, blah, blah, nope. blah. Then maybe we took the same approach, which was gore so bad it just pulls you right out of the damn scene. It's kind of like a like a needle scratch, you know. It's like, oh, oh no, that just did not work. I did that for half of my list. And then concluded my list with maybe a different thought process entirely. Welcome to how my brain works. But before we get into that, my brain is not the important thing here. I want to hear how you started your list. Well, let me just put one more caveat in here before I start. Okay. I didn't, I tried not to pick on low budget movies. Yes. Yes. They don't have the resources. Okay. And the creativity matters. Like Evil Dead was made on like a shoestring budget. And yeah, that stop motion stuff is uh, goofy. And yeah, a lot of that stuff looks fake, but it's so imaginative. You get swept up in the moment of it. And I think that it's legitimately fun to watch and interesting. So I don't think you're breaking the movie by having bad gore. Even the thing, like Uh this is going to sound like blasphemy, but I mean, I absolutely adore it. It's in my top 10-ish movies with the head turns into the spider (laughs) and it like walks away is it you got to be fucking kidding me right it doesn't look real you're right and (laughs) you could you could totally be like oh that's crap right but it's you're in the moment Uh and it really Uh does seem to work well enough that you're like yeah that's fine i just wanted to say i'm not attacking low budget with this i didn't yeah i tried i'm right there with you i didn't want to pick on the little guy i didn't want to punch down so with that said my number five is deep blue sea from 1999 is directed by Rennie Harlan. And I think really Deep Blue Sea was where he he fully went into camp mode. <laughs> I enjoy the movie. I like it. I And, and this moment that I'm going to talk about is probably one of the most surprising moments in any movie ever. And of course, it's the moment where Samuel L. Jackson gives his rousing speech. Now you've seen how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way. Well, they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal off this... (laughs) 
and it's so abhorrently rendered and yet you're you're in the spirit of it it's kind of like oh yeah but it's really it is really really bad if you rewatch it it's stunning what makes it glorious is that it is <laughs> literally the moment rennie harlan's career actually jumps the shark that's yes he actually (laughs) jumps the shark as a filmmaker by jumping a shark you couldn't (laughs) ask for anything more hilarious than that no so that's that is my number five okay so i'm gonna leave it at that not a lot of gore in that one though right so you're going more for the well there is if you watch it no there's there's a good amount believe it or not there's a good amount of blood like blood cg blood stuff that goes down and stuff yeah yeah yeah. i guess i don't well and and maybe it speaks to how how poor it is because i don't remember that part i remember the surprise of the shark taking right. him off his feet and diving in the water with him i guess it pulls it kind of drags huh. him back there's this shot of it dragging him back mm. and he's like oh, oh he's like flailing <laughs> and it's a cg okay it's terrible that works it's awful. that works well <laughs> my number five is gonna go ahead and pick on a franchise that you know i love but boy, mm. there's an awful lot of suspect stuff in here. I could probably do a whole bottom five just on Friday the 13th movies. Oh. But I'm going to huh. go with Friday the 13th part three mm-hmm. in a moment where Jason is trying to crush the head of one of the you know <laughs> nameless dumb boyfriends. He, he sneaks up behind him and he crushes his head and the guy's eyeball flies out. But yep. what you may recall is part mm-hmm. three was originally presented was in, in 3D. 3D. So what we get here is Jason sneaks up behind the guy. We get a very sloppy cut and it switches over to what is the most obvious rubber head you've ever seen. Yeah. Jason squishes the guy's head and then in slow motion, the eyeball flies out on what is very (laughs) clearly a wire. It's a wire. Yeah, you can can see. see. And because it's slow motion... It destroys any chance that this effect had of working. (laughs) It's so shitty. It's almost hard to imagine it made it into the film. And at the same time, it's kind of the stuff that I love about the Friday the 13th franchise. But in a series that has an awful lot of eye roll kind of special effects, that particular gore scene of the, the 3D flying eyeball in part three is that's where it is for me. I had to single that one out with my number five. What's so funny about that one is that I actually thought I haven't seen it since I was like a kid. I think Mm -hmm. I remember the eye being on something, but I thought it was on a pole. Mm. I thought maybe the guy had gotten stabbed through the back of the head and the eye was on a pole. I think I constructed this whole narrative around a bad special Uh effect. Basically there are In that movie, there's a lot of bad 3D effects where things that aren't Jason are flying at the screen. I remember you saying that during Amityville. The snake jumps out. There's a lot of those kind of things. And in that movie, there's there's a lot of poles poking people in in the Friday the 13th franchise to begin with. So it's not hard to kind of conflate them all together. But this is very clearly a squished rubber head. (laughs) And it's terrible. Interestingly, my number four has an eye popping out in it as well. Perhaps filmmakers haven't been doing this particularly well, I suspect. And that's um, from 2008, the movie The Midnight Meat Train, Mm. which was an adaptation of a Clive Barker story. This movie has a lot of style. It was directed by, I'm terrible with names here, but Ryohi, Ryuhi, Ryuhi Kitamura. So (laughs) I apologize... (laughs) I apologize completely for the pronunciation of that. Let's go with that. The gore isn't the worst thing about 
the Midnight Me Train. Uh, that's that would be Brooke Shields playing like this power gallery owner, and it's like the most cringe-inducing boss bitch you can imagine. It's like um a really really low rent version of the Meryl Streep character from The Devil Wears Prada, mm-hmm. and it, she owns a gallery. <laughs> it's just like. You had me at you know, Brooke I Shields. That... I knew exactly what the problem was the second he said Brooke Shields. <laughs> oh, all right. I get it. Oh, that's the issue. Bradley Cooper's in it. It's a visually very interesting movie. Even the story is kind of an interesting thing. You kind of know where it's going to go, but it's kind of fun watching where it goes. But Jesus, the gore is almost all CG. It's like a mix of CG and practical. When it's practical... It, it's working. It's doing its magic. But when when it's CG, it's god-awful. And in fact... Sam Raimi comes up again here, uh, his brother, Ted Raimi, is in this movie at one point, very small role. He gets hit by the the meat train cleaver guy (laughs) who just goes around. The train is essentially an abattoir, you know, people getting destroyed in it with this hammer, this meat hammer. And what's interesting is this guy always wears a suit. And he splatters people, but he never gets any blood on his suit, which is very weird. Because it's all CG. That's why. It's like how high school kids walk around in their Air Jordans. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Don't crease them. <laughs> Don't get blood on them. He, so he, at one point, he hits Ted Raimi really, really hard against the face. And, and Raimi's head just kind of explodes under the force of the hammer. And the, his eyes go shooting toward. And it's all ludicrous CG. And it pulls you right out because the movie really is trying to be gritty and dark and moody. And it has a lot of these great visuals. So uh, Midnight Me Train from 2008 is my number four. What's yours, Mike? I think for number four, I'm going to go with a movie that is part of a franchise that you usually connect with good gore scenes. Hmm. But not by the time we get to Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Hmm. We get a lot of great gore in that first Hellraiser movie. Some pretty good stuff even in that second one. But in Hellraiser 3, there's all the fucking CD deaths. Because when this movie was being made, compact discs were everywhere. We had run out of good ideas for the Cenobites. So they're Cenobites that have like throwing stars except they're compact discs it's so balls stupid i can't even take it yeah there's a scene where there's a rave going on and the cenobites show up the cenobite is just throwing compact disc after compact disc and it's just jesus the scene in Shaun of the dead where they're throwing the records uselessly at the zombies yes that's right is what that scene should be (laughs) but instead these lords of hell are murdering people with writable CDR. Oh, it's not like discs. Kenny G discs. No, Michael not Bolton. not even. It's just it's <laughs> just like yeah, overwritten CDs that, that they're oh. throwing. They got Sharpie on them. Jay's summer playlist, nineteen ninety six. Santos jams with a Z. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, for of sure. course. Long live physical media. I guess if you're gonna murder somebody, you can't really do it with an MP3. But it's so dumb. <laughs> so I want to see an assault with a with a VHS tape. Mm-hmm. Just like a. <laughs> oh, you could take a head off with a laser disc. No problem. You could. There you, you go. Could decapitate a motherfucker with a laser disc. That's easy. So we're both at number four with Clive Barker, technically speaking. Yep. Yep. So that's kind of an interesting uh, thing. Well, my number three sounds a little bit like your number five in that it involves a head exploding. Mm. <laughs> and that this would be um, the head at the end of the Brawl in Cell Block 99 okay. from 2017. This would be the final shot of the movie, pretty much. I think it is the last shot of the movie. And at this point, I had kind of 
checked out a little bit out of the the narrative because really <laughs> you don't say it well it became it became really silly it was it almost turned into like a less inventive and less fun version of Ricky O yeah by the end and so they they tried to make it so that you cared about Vince Vaughn and his daughter and whatever and you it's it's ludicrous the entire movie is ludicrous but it didn't fully embrace its sort of comic booky graphic novel vibe Mm -hmm. they tried to present it in a very real way and then tried to make you care about the characters and it almost succeeded near the end with this ridiculous phone call that he has while don johnson's waiting for him don johnson's like this uh i don't know he's like a prison warden and he's standing on the other side of this locked prison gate with a hand cannon you know he's standing on the other side of this thing and 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 vince vaughn's on the phone with his daughter i'm blowing the entire ending of this i haven't talked about anything (laughs) else with it but you know, and he's like, it's this, it's kind of like this nice moment between him and his wife. And you know, this isn't going to turn out well for him. And you followed this guy through his journey. He succeeded through all of his trials and tribulations and such. And then at the very end, the last shot, Don Johnson shoots him and his head goes, and it is the fakest. It's like his head shatters. <laughs> it's just this fake, really laughable effect. It very much like a Ricky O. What was that? The Daily Show used to always show that shot from Ricky O where, where he crushes the guy's head with uh-huh. two, with his and two it's, fists. It's like a cake exploding. Yeah. Th- that's pretty much what this looked like. And then the movie ends. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck you. This, fuck. Like, so, yeah, this definitely lands a solid number three on my list. Yeah. For a second at the beginning of your setup, when you talked about exploding head, I thought mm. you were going to talk about... Scanners? Scanners, which would have been no. blasphemy. So... No, Thank I would goodness never do we that. went down this road, not no. that road. <laughs> I have not seen Brawl in Cell Block 99 or presumably Brawl in Cell Blocks 1 through 98. I haven't seen those either. <laughs> for me, I guess I'm never going to get around to this. So thanks for doing it for me. That's that's yeah, sounds... it's, it was I, I took it on the chin for you. <laughs> I'll Google this one, I guess. My number three So far, I've been picking on popular franchises, and I'm going to do it again here with number three, by picking on a franchise that I really love, that's really near and dear to me, and I almost feel bad. This might be brushing up a little bit against that lower budget. It's definitely bumping Mm. up against the lower budget little guy kind of thing, but it, it tracks for me. For me, a franchise I love is the Phantasm films. Oh, You know this about me. Yeah. But on multiple occasions, the Flying Orb... The, the mm. tall man's silver flying orb. They manage this effect over the course of the franchise a few different ways. When they do it practically, it works pretty well. Coscarelli got pretty inventive with using some reverse camera yeah. to, to get it to work. And then they decided to make it a CG thing later. And that was a terrible idea. But almost always when it actually kills somebody, it's just a person holding the ball up to their forehead and screaming while blood gushes out of it like a hilarious fountain. It's always such a laughable effect because of the bad acting of them holding the ball up. Like in an Ed Wood movie where somebody's wrestling with an octopus that isn't alive. (laughs) Those those kind of things. And it's just... The Phantasm movies are really... DIY Coscarelli. I I love how much he cares about these movies. I'm not saying a bad thing about a phantasm film, but 
the gushing orb head thing. They're silly. That's They're silly. silly. The, the, it's just yeah. yeah it every is silly. time it's it it makes me chuckle <laughs> every single. You time. want to talk about a series of movies that doesn't really care that much about plot, but it definitely cashes mm-hmm. in on the the ambience and the the atmosphere yeah. and the very much like the Beyond in, in many respects. They Big it time. feels like a cousin to that movie. So that's mm-hmm. a that's a really good pick. Well, I'm finally entering the franchises now with my number two. And this is Alien from 1979. Okay, no, 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 no. Okay, so I'm not here to bag on Alien. I'm pretty sure that it's one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. period, of all time. I will um, vouch for you on that one. I've probably seen it about 15, 15, 16, 17 times. And every time I see it, I like it a little bit more, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I, there's just more to like. The rich production design, the amazing lighting, the the direction, the, the, the and the gore. Honestly, the gore. The, the chestburster sequence is incredible. Although it's sort of the inverse of what you were just saying about Phantasm, where the acting is so bad, it, it they can't sell it. Uh-huh. But in Alien, when that chestburster sequence happens, it's the reaction of all the actors that really sells the horror right. of it. I mean, it's a pretty pretty disgusting moment. It's something popping out of someone's chest, ripping them open and then coming out of them and you know, growling. But it is a puppet, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but Veronica Cartwright's face in that horrified, like, oh, God, like that. Yes. So you're like, yes, yes, but... In Alien, there is one moment. Do you know the moment I'm going to pick out or no? Do you know sure what I'm going to say? I'm not sure I do. For, 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 I don't know why they did this. So Yafet Koto's character, Parker, fights Ash at one point and hits him with like a, a fire extinguisher, I think it is, and, and like knocks, literally knocks his head off. And that's how they discover that he's an android. Uh-huh. And then they pick up the head and it's clearly a fake rubber head and they put it on a table and they sort of like shake it a little bit and then when they let go it's like a snap cut and then suddenly it's Ian Holmes head in a table uh-huh it's very clear that they made a just a terrible switcheroo uh-huh. they could have cut back to any one of the other four people in the room but instead they just smash cut from this terrible fake <laughs> plastic head to a close-up of Ian Holm with his head in a table and you can like <laughs> see the lip almost like the lip of the prosthetic right above the table it's so piss poor for a movie that otherwise is so perfect and so I sit here and go no huh. you know like I cannot and it pulls me out of the scene every time because I'm like there's that fucking shot again yep <laughs> there it still is still in the movie still, in the, still movie. in the movie and so I don't know why they did it in a movie that's so filled with perfect moments and, you know, this jaw-dropping craft, how this could pass the smell test. So there you have it. <laughs> well, I didn't think we'd be criticizing Alien for part of this. I always I always appreciate you being bold. You go places that my brain never goes. And you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. So that's good. Fair that's, enough. I'm going to have to rewatch that scene. The problem is it never bothered me, and now it will only ever now bother me. Now it's always so going to bother you. Thank you for ruining Alien for me. That's great. <laughs> We're down to my last two, and this is where I decided to take a little bit of a left turn with how I thought about this list. Uh, and I decided that that my final two are going to be gore scenes that should have been a goddamn mess, and they forgot the gore. And so, for my number two... <laughs> what a great idea. I'm going with 1981's Halloween 2, yeah. because there's a scene towards the end where Laurie Strode has a pistol... And she shoots Michael Myers in both of his eyes. Like she's fucking John Wick, by the way, right? Plugging out his eyes. 
from across the room like a goddamn sharpshooter. He doesn't what, even bleed, does he? What? Oh, he does. But oh. like, he kind of cries a little bit of blood and puts his hands oh, up to it. his okay. eyes. Jason, yeah. I get that Michael Myers is bad and he's evil and he's all that. But when you shoot somebody in both of their eyeballs, the back of their head has got to paint the wall. It's the inverse of what happened in Cell Block 99. Uh, it's it's exactly the complete it. opposite. It's, it's like watching the scene in, in Rewind. And yeah, it's like he's got an eyelash. He's like, owie, owie, ow, 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 ow. Like, it's, it's like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> That's such a great choice. Yeah, in a movie that has some otherwise really good gore effects. Yeah. The hot tub scene where... That's a good he, one. He You'll m- never forget melts that. melts a nurse. It's unforgivable how dumb it is to shoot somebody's eyeballs out and not have it be an absolute <laughs> dripping mess all over the place. So that's that's the number two for me. Every time I get to this part in an otherwise pretty fun Halloween film, you said a needle scratch, and that's exactly right for me in that yeah, moment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, It's funny that you say that because th- this tack that you're taking for your final two is very m- much something that always stuck out for me in Carpenter's They Live, mm. where at the end, Rowdy Rowdy Piper's shooting everyone in sight. <laughs> There's no squibs. They had no budget. Uh-huh. So all people do is go, uh, uh, and they like shake around. And they just shake, they shake and, and, and they fall. fall. Down. Uh-huh. Like they're getting riddled with bullets and they just shake and fall. He didn't even have budget enough for squibs. <laughs> and maybe they didn't have it. They didn't have it for Halloween. Halloween 2. Who knows? So good, good pick. <laughs> Great you. idea to kind of invert there. I can't wait to share my number one. I, that's I'm, I'm excited for this. You said I went bold with Alien. I'm going to go even more bold here. It's Dawn of the Dead Man from 1978. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. The effects in this movie are very creative, but Tom Savini sort of failed Romero on this. And Savini has even talked about how he didn't like the effects that he did for the movie, specifically the coloring, the coloring of the zombies being too bluish because he didn't realize that the lighting was going to turn them blue. They were more gray looking, but they turned kind of blue because of the way the camera was reading the color. And it turned the blood into like this weird, almost pinkish, paint it looked like pink paint it does not look great and obviously it's different from scene to scene right like it in some scenes it looks better in the mall it was a little bit better when they're tearing the guy apart and stuff mm-hmm. you know it's like ah oh, it's a little bit better you put all of your stock on your gore in dawn of the dead i mean this is the most important aspect of this is mm-hmm. zombies eating flesh tearing flesh blood everywhere and it doesn't look good I love Savini. I loved his work in Friday the 13th. That alone gets him to sit alongside guys like Rick Baker and Dick Smith. But you can't forgive the sins of Dawn of the Dead's blood. You know, he's even said that. He He's even admitted that. So Yeah, and what a testament to how good the rest of that film is because it is such yeah. a classic. And it's so highly regarded. The fact that Romero made a film that works in its totality that... Yeah, when you're honest about it, you're right. A lot of that effect does not work, mm-hmm. but it doesn't ruin the sauce. And that's pretty impressive. It is impressive. What I would love to do, honestly, like I always talk with my wife about this. I'm going to do Santo cuts of all of these movies <laughs> when I'm older. You know, like when I'm retired, this is what I'm going to do with my time. Like some okay. guys putter in the some guys putter in the garage or whatever. I'm going to be sitting at a computer re-editing movies into better <laughs> versions, or at least for me, better versions. <laughs> but 
what I'd love to do is make all three of them black and white. Bump up the contrast, mm. make them all black and white, and see how they play as a real trilogy that feels the same mm. from night all the way to day. I think you'll only gain and not lose. But, you know, that's a that's a pretty controversial opinion. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, when you get around to old man cutting your own movies just yes. to please your own cranky self, give yes. me a call. I'll come check it out. I'll be right there with you. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. We'll probably be talking about them on here. <laughs> <laughs> My number one is from Leprechaun in Space. This is Space Leprechaun. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And Leprechaun in Space has essentially what are its own version of Colonial Marines. Right. There is a scene... Where the leprechaun literally emerges from a dude's penis while he's getting a space handy. Oh. <laughs> and it's a completely bloodless scene. Oh, what? Uh, yeah. Well, they're magic. Well, okay, sure. <laughs> Wait, hand jobs or leprechauns? Which one are magic? I don't know. I mean, but both? It really doesn't matter because while I'm not an astronaut, a leprechaun expert or a boner scientist when a fully formed Warwick Davis explodes from a penis, there should be an avalanche of gore. Instead, he just kind of pops out of the guy's zipper and the man falls down. (laughs) And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But when a leprechaun explodes from your penis mid handy, it needs to rain space blood. (laughs) And it does not. I think, well, first of all, it's Leprechaun 4. In space. This is Leprechaun in space. Part 4. I still think it's a magic, it's a magical being, so it could come out of the penis magically. No. Why did it come out of the penis? Because he was getting a space hand job, Jason. And from the, who? The leprechaun, from a rainbow? From a lady. There's a, a space lady. One of the Marines <laughs> is getting a little handy from one of the space ladies. And all of a sudden. Is she like, an alien? Out. No, it's not her fault. She was just helping a fella out. He starts going, ooh, not so hard. Ouch, take it easy. Oh, come on. She continues the act. And to this man's credit, <laughs> he is not bailing from this for as long as he possibly can. He's hanging in there trying to make it happen as only a space <laughs> marine could when finally it becomes too much. And then he backs off and you start seeing the trousers kind of bopping around. And what emerges from this guy's trousers is a fully formed Warwick Davis. Leprechaun. Let that be a lesson to you, lad. Always wear a prophylactic. You're not going to convince me that there's any amount of magic that doesn't make your pe- His penis isn't magic. It should explode. It should explode. <laughs> so it doesn't. Fair it's enough. ridiculous. It should be an all-time gore bonanza, and it's not. It's ludicrous, and that's why it's my number one. <laughs> We'd really love to hear your thoughts on this. Write to Mike at FilmJitsu.net and let him know, you know, if he's wrong, which he is. Because it's there's magic. no way I'm wrong. I just there's not a universe where a it's leprechaun like rubbing a magic lamp. But it's not a magic lamp. It's just a regular penis. It's not a magic penis. The penis isn't the magic. The leprechaun is the magic. And the guy dies. He falls down dead. Oh, that's even stupider. So it that's should explode stupid. like a hot dog in the microwave. It should explode. <laughs> How do we possibly follow up 
Yeah, good luck. Your move. Leprechaun. We'll just call it, it'll be St. Peter's Day. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> How do we possibly follow up St. Peter's Day? No. How do we possibly follow up talking about a leprechaun popping out of a cock? Well, we're going to do it today with our staff picks. We're going to move completely away, not from the horror genre, because we still want to offer you some scares, but we want to try to offer you some good scares, some good movies. So, Mike, what do we have for people that isn't a leprechaun popping out of a penis? Jay, for this Halloween season, I want to share a movie that I think is genuinely scary. A movie Mm. that every time I watch it, it scares me almost in a different way. I notice something I didn't notice before. It's a movie where you want to turn off the lights, make things as quiet and as still as you can, wrap yourself in a blanket, and watch Neil Marshall's The Descent. The Descent is about a group of women who meet up in the Appalachians to do some cave climbing, some spelunking, I guess. I don't know. There's a rock climber out there. It's going to be real pissed that I'm using the wrong words. They explore a fucking cave, right? These women who have complicated friendships and relationships and interpersonal stuff that you don't know when they get there, but this group of longtime friends descend into this cave and get lost. And the movie starts scary for some reasons, becomes scary for other reasons, and then concludes almost an entirely different plane of why this movie is scary. You get the claustrophobia of a man versus nature story of these Mm -hmm. women stuck in these caves and it's getting darker and it's getting smaller and the lights are running out and they're they're going from self-assured to freaking out. And as that starts happening, they start turning on each other as the audience gets to know more about the relationships that they bring into the cave. And we start to divide lines between these women. And in this terrible circumstance, they all fall apart as a group when they should be coming together. And then it turns into a monster movie on top of that. Mm -hmm. And they're not alone in the caves. And for me, that's not even the scariest part. It's everything that kind of leads up to that. It's the circumstances that make it so, so terrifying. And then throwing in this traditional horror element of they're not alone in the cave adds a whole other layer to it i think everybody walks away feeling like the movie concludes differently even neil marshall did because he has a couple different endings you could see the end of this movie and think a lot of different things and i don't know that Mm -hmm. any of them are are right or wrong and i love a movie where it's sort of up to you as the viewer to decide what you think this might mean regardless of what that is it doesn't disappoint i want a movie that frightens me but also makes me think and we hear all the time of course that women are so poorly represented in horror and that is often true but here you get a group of women if i'm remembering correctly i don't think there's a man anywhere in the movie uh, maybe except for I guess you could probably say these creatures down in the these cave creatures, and, yeah, and yeah. what do they represent? But you get this group of women that are the stars of the show for this Halloween season. I think if you haven't seen the descent or if it's been a while, sit down, turn off the lights and get spooky. It's a great pick. I, it, for a time, it was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. Um, wow. My son used to always ask me, he used to say to me, what's the scariest movie? And I'd say the descent. Yeah, The Descent. Wow, okay. (laughs) It's the claustrophobia of the first, you know, half hour, 45 Mm -hmm. minutes. And then what could have easily destroyed the movie just gives it more power and more fright. And that's the introduction of these creatures, Mm -hmm. these Appalachian mutants. (laughs) It's a very, very unsettling movie. It's a great, great choice for the Halloween season. Great choice for any time of year. 
what Halloween season is complete without some film enthusiast shooting his mouth off about how truly scary a non-horror movie is and how that movie should be watched <laughs> alongside more conventional offerings. Well, yeah. Consider me the asshole this year. <laughs> As I would like to re- recommend to everyone this uh, deceptively creepy and bleak, but also very exciting and often very funny film from Noah Baumbach. And that's White Noise from 2022 this is a you know it is a weird ass movie bumbach i don't know what's going on with him here he's at one time he's channeling spielberg then it's hitchcock then it's a little bit of wes anderson maybe even joe dante Mm. i think of this as like a movie where if it were made about the 1960s and it was made in the 1980s joe dante would have directed it okay but as it is you know this movie is Made in the 2020s, and it's about the 1980s. So there you go. You've got Noah Baumbach doing it. It's a chilling, weird look at kind of pedestrian white American life in the mid-80s. It's an adaptation of Don DeLillo's um, 85 novel of the same name. And I guess it's, it's not quite as obsessed with technology as the novel. This movie is really obsessed with how we bide our short time while we're alive on planet Earth. Hmm. It follows this eccentric college lecturer who's played in a really weirdly wonderful, stilted and mannered way by Adam Driver. And he's considered the definitive, the definitive scholar on Adolf Hitler. His family and friend circle is all populated by just as eccentric cast of weirdos. So it's it's sort of like a Wes Anderson thing, right? Uh-huh. But after a series of increasingly intense and bizarre occurrences place all of the characters in harm's way, not the least of which is this airborne toxic event, which was caused by a train explosion mm. in Ohio. Adam Driver's family tries to stay together while dealing with um, internal friction that includes drug addiction and infidelity. So uh, it reaches high and mighty all over the place. It's a sloppy narratively. It kind of just sprawls. And it doesn't sound like horror, but there are several sequences where Bombach proves that he's really become a master behind the camera. Mm. And there's this one sequence in particular, which was probably the most unsettling and surprising moment I've seen in a movie in, in quite a while. So I'd say give it a whirl when gore's kind of losing its luster and the scares are feeling cheap and uninspired. Uh, sometimes the best scares are the ones you don't expect at all and, and they're buried deep in the heart of a satirical black comedy. I don't know how this one managed to pass me by. What I do know is that any movie that has Greta Gerwig in front of the mm-hmm. camera, behind the camera, <laughs> on the page, it doesn't matter. If she's involved, it has my interest. The only knock on this whole movie is how in the hell it ended up with the title White Noise when there is yeah. a, a 2005 horror movie that is notoriously garbage that has yes. the same name. Jeez, but it's a rough one. I, I don't know how I didn't catch up with this one, and that's fantastic because here we are in Halloween season and I'm always looking for something new. That sounds great to me. I'm, I can't wait to check it out. I hope our listeners will too. Jason, we have somehow ventured through the cemetery into the haunted house, made it out alive to the part of the episode where I get to reveal what you're going to watch for next week's show, our third and final Halloween episode of this spooky season. (laughs) And 
And I thought a lot about this. For our first episode, we did 13 Ghosts. What happens when Hollywood makes a horror movie and it doesn't go well? (laughs) How money can ruin a movie. For our second one, you threw a bone to the horror hounds and went real deep in with Fulci. And Mm -hmm. so I thought for our final episode, I want to toss kind of a meatball right down the middle. Mm. Something that everybody can dive into, whether you're a hardcore horror fan or not, we can all agree that the most well-known name in all of horror is Friday the 13th. And so with that in mind and that whole field to choose from, the worst of the worst to me is a movie I'd like to make you watch for our upcoming episode. And that is Jason Goes to Hell. Oh, yeah. God, I've seen it. Yes, this is an atrocious movie. This is the one at the end of the movie where the where Freddy's glove comes out of the ground, right? And sets up, oh, this is an awful movie. It's the Jason movie without the Jason. <laughs> yeah. This is the movie that basically buried the, the franchise for years. Like, sure like after did. this one, this was it for a while. Yeah, I don't remember it. I saw it in the movie theater. I think I saw Jason Takes Manhattan and this in the movie theater. I think I saw six through in the movie theater and I hated every single one of them I was wondering why I was even in the movie theater I remembered there were visual flourishes in this movie it's going to be interesting to revisit uh-huh I can tell you that I I hate you as I do Good. every week yep. Um, yep. this Perfect. this is not something I want to spend any time with mercifully nope. I think it comes in at just about 90 minutes oh this thing is probably 14 and a half minutes long <laughs> that's fine it'll feel like four hours but um i couldn't let our first halloween season go by i have jason my <laughs> co-host i had to have you do a jason oh, you movie bastard. and I, this is like it's like school all over again hey jason where's your axe uh, oh nobody went the santo claus route that's dumb so, oh they did that too later but <laughs> also a lame joke but i wanted to have something that whether you're deep into horror or it's not your thing Everybody knows about the Friday the 13th movies. Yeah, And this is, sure. I think, the shittiest of the shitty. And so that's what you're going to be watching for our upcoming episode. Now, what is our bottom five going to be? I want to close out our conversation about the Halloween season. We talked about some of these horror franchises today in our bottom fives, but let's make it official. Let's go ahead and do oh. our bottom five horror franchises, oh. which is a tough assignment when you stop and think huh. about it because... We need to consider the whole franchise. Some of these franchises have very good entries that kind of throw off the curve. Some of these franchises have really bad entries that spoil some good stuff and everything in between. So I think this is a chance for our audience to get to know us a little bit more, get to know our sensibility. And so we're going to do our bottom five film franchises. Now, maybe we have to define that for me. A franchise has to be more than three movies, right? Does that is that mm. is that a thing? Like a trilogy yeah. is three. More than that, now we're talking franchises. I don't know if that's an official definition, but that's how I think of it. But what about you? Yeah, that's fine. I I can't stand the word franchise at all, so I, I like calling them series. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I get you. I feel you, and that's yeah. We'll go with it. I, this is gonna be a tough one. For sure. I can't think of any off the top of my head other than really low budget ones that are awful. We may be we may be punching down for this one. Well, <laughs> but I know I know a lot of these you don't like. I yeah, know that I don't. you don't yeah. love the Friday the thirteenth series, yep. for example, yeah. which is why I picked it. And so let's see what we can come up with. Let's let's see if we can get creative with it. That's a that's a, you you've you've set it up 
Let's knock it down. All right, we'll do it. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a tough one. Jay, we're at the end. I've given you your curse. I've given you your punishment. I think it's time to close the casket and get the hell out of here. I hope we survive (laughs) until next week's sequel. If not, it's been real. But until then, I've been Mike. And I was Jay. We'll see you next time. No matter where you, no matter who you are, no, no matter where you are, there you, no. What is it? How's it go? Uh, I, I can't remember. Walrus? No, no matter where. I am the walrus. No matter where you are. I, I am the there walrus. There you, no, that's not it. I am the walrus. God damn it. No, v, come on. It's v. a I good Lennon, line. Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>